It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Good morning, Birdland. I'm Mark Brown. I've been covering the Orioles for more than a decade on CamdenChat.com and talking about them on this podcast for 83 episodes and counting. It is now November the 13th, 2023. We are in the early days of the baseball offseason. Unsurprisingly, there has yet been no Orioles news of consequence. Two dates of important will come. Um, importance will come later on this week, as tomorrow on the 14th, teams must set their 40-man rosters to protect eligible players from next month's Rule 5 draft. And Friday will mark what is known as the tender deadline, at which time teams can decide to get rid of a player by not tendering him a contract for the 2024 season because either they don't think they have any more room for him on the roster or they don't think he will be worth the expected arbitration salary he would get next year. Players who are non-tendered join the free agent pool. I think tomorrow's Rule 5 deadline is really only of small interest in the sense that it'll be curious to see how aggressive the Orioles are in protecting their players. Last year, the Orioles added five players ahead of the deadline to protect them from the Rule 5 draft. And two years ago, they added six. But the math is much different this year, and there's two reasons for that. One is there are already uh, a number of players on the roster who've got pretty much solidified spots. And the second is that there are not that many quality prospects becoming freshly eligible for the draft who are not already on the 40-man roster. And the newly eligible crop of players generally are international signings from 2018, a 2019 high school draft picks, and 2022 college picks or undrafted signings from that shortened five-round draft in the middle of the pandemic year. So a year ago, it looked like the three most significant players the Orioles would need to add 
to their 40-man at this time were Jordan Westberg, Heston Kerstad, and Jarrell Ernais. And Westberg and Kerstad, of course, joined the Orioles during the course of the 2023 season, and Ernais was traded over last offseason. So that leaves the Orioles with only one player on their MLB Pipeline Top 30 Prospects list who's becoming eligible just now. And that is outfielder Hudson Haskin, who was picked in that 2020 draft. He was kind of looked like a possible Ryan McKenna replacement heading into this year. Had shown good on base skills and some modest power while ascending the minors, but he was limited to just 23 games at AAA Norfolk this year. Uh, All the rest of the players on their top 30 list, they're either already on the 40-man or they don't become eligible until later. And uh, it is good that the Orioles don't have too many choices to make here because at the moment there are only two open spots on the 40-man roster. So if they are going to add more than that, they'd need to trim somebody. And I think they're going to end up adding Haskin, um, maybe pitching prospect Jean Pinto, who has been intriguing, although his numbers this season did sag uh, tremendously after being promoted from high A Aberdeen to double A Bowie. He's still pretty young, though, so I think they should add him and probably will. Maybe they will also find room for a semi-surprise reliever, as they've done for the past few seasons, adding players. I think one candidate for that might be lefty Trey McGuff, who you've probably not thought about before right now, unless you are an Orioles prospect sicko. Uh, McGuff just put on a decent Arizona Fall League audition, and he is a lefty reliever who might be worth having as an up-and-down option over the course of 2024, who, if he plays well, could blossom into a greater role than that. It's going to be, I think, a year from now that's really going to be interesting if the ranks are not thinned out by trades, because the Orioles are going to have a lot of choices to make at this time next year, because players who will be hitting their first-time Rule 5 draft eligibility this time in 2024 include Kobe Mayo, Connor Norby, Chase McDermott, Cade Povich, Justin Armbruster, John Rhodes, Carter Baumler, Billy Cook, and Alex Pham. These are just guys on that MLB Pipeline top 30 list who will be first-time eligible next year. You could, if you're really thorough, maybe even come up with another half-dozen who at least might be worth keeping an eye on through the 2024 season to see if they're candidates a year from now. It's a lot of names. Some of them, certainly, will probably um, end up faltering next year, and no one would then lose any sleep uh, worrying about whether those players are going to be picked if they weren't added to the roster. Uh, I suggest not losing any sleep over any of this until the 2024 season is done, because between off-season trades, in-season trades next year, and in-season promotions to the 2024 Orioles, a whole lot could change with that group of prospects or with the players who are at higher levels of the organization ahead of them. So rule five, I think two to three guys maybe will be added. Going to be more interesting next year, but let's not worry about that until next year. And that brings us to the other order of routine business, the tender deadline. Uh, Heading into next season, the Orioles have 16 players who are eligible for arbitration, which is generally players with three to five years of big league experience. That's a big group. Um, Per the lists on MLBTradeRumors.com, there's actually only one team that has more arbitration-eligible players heading into next year at the moment, which is the New York Yankees, who have 17. And 
Arbitration, just in case you're not already aware, that's where you stop making near MLB minimum salary and you start getting raises based on how your performance measures up to comparable players who had the same amount of service time. And the more years of arbitration you've had, the greater the raises you tend to get and the higher the ceiling is on your arbitration salary. So projected arbitration salaries for the Orioles range from Anthony Santander in his final year of arbitration before becoming a free agent. He's projected at $12.7 million to Ryan McKenna, who counts as what is called a Super 2 because he actually only has two years and some change of service time, but he's in the... Uh, He's higher up in the rank of players with two years. So those guys get called Super 2, but he's projected to make $740,000 next year. So I'm going to focus here for this episode on players who I think are more on the bubble due to their role on the team next year being less clearly defined. Uh, I don't think there's anybody who there's going to be money concerns about where it's like, oh, the Orioles got a non-tender this guy because... He's going to make too much money. I don't think that should be an issue. Who knows what uh, what's going to happen as long as John Angelos is in charge and being weird. But uh, there shouldn't be any money-based non-tenders. And if there are, we should be mad about it. So the group of players, I think, who are on the bubble because maybe they don't have a role next year are Dylan Tate, Cole Irvin, Keegan Aiken, Jacob Webb, and McKenna. And I think there's two more guys who are maybe going to be tough to squeeze on the next year's roster. Uh, I don't think they should be non-tender candidates. I will mention them here, though. Jorge Mateo and Ramon Arias. I think they will maybe end up getting traded in some kind of marginal deal if they get moved. Arias especially. Um, since Mateo at least seems to have a role as the speedy guy off the bench. Arias, not as much. Um, but I, I don't think either of them should or will be non-tendered. So of the five guys that I named as non-tender candidates, Irvin, McKenna, and Webb are the ones who will be out of minor league options next season, which means the Orioles cannot freely send them to the minors during the 2024 season. The team under Mike Elias has made heavy use of the flexibility of being able to send players to the minors, and if players don't have that anymore, I think they need to have a substantial role secured for themselves. Uh, Irvin certainly did not. He was a disappointment this year since he was unable to pitch well enough to stay in the starting rotation all year. I do think he might have value as a swingman slash long relief guy. So I think that's maybe why they would be, it would be worth keeping um, Irvin around McKenna. His only place is as a fourth outfielder. And, you know, the Orioles did not view his spot as a sacrosanct roster spot this year. McKenna did end up getting sent to the minors and staying there with Aaron Hicks getting supplemented in the regular outfield. And even in September, Heston Kerstad was an option, although they didn't end up playing him in the outfield very much. Uh, Jacob Webb, you know, he had a small number of good games right after joining the Orioles on waivers from the Angels and was pretty bad after that, including the playoffs. As for the other two, Keegan Aiken and Dylan Tate will have a minor league option remaining for 2024. So, they can at least be sent down to Norfolk if they uh, are struggling and the Orioles decide they want to give them another chance to straighten things out. Aiken struggled a lot when he pitched this season, and Tate ultimately did not get into an MLB-level game at all. Aiken had a 6.85 ERA across 24 games, just plain bad, uh, no alibi, UGLY, you know. But 
As I mentioned in a previous episode, that did include a laughably high 434 batting average on balls in play for Aiken. So maybe he did just have really bad luck. Again, remember, the typical is going to be more like in the 300 range. So that much more, who knows? Uh, He did have a much lower FIP, I believe like 2.92 fielding independent pitching. So maybe Aiken is due for a bounce back, maybe worth keeping around. Tate, well, he was really good in 2022, as we probably all remember, but it's never a guarantee any pitcher will come back looking like his old self after missing an entire season with kind of vague injuries. Uh, I would be surprised if the Orioles non-tender more than two of the candidates here. I think Jacob Webb seems like the most obvious candidate. Uh, Ryan McKenna and Keegan Aiken seem like also possibilities. Ultimately, the team is running out of room for guys that it can stash around on the 40-man roster just in case they become valuable later. You know, the days of the team being able to cycle through six to eight players who are all kind of dead weight and worthless on the roster are thankfully over. Now, they're not going to have to make decisions about, let's say, Kyle Stowers, Taryn Vavra, or Bruce Zimmerman over the course of this next week, but that's another trio of players who I think time is running short in the organization if they don't settle into a role soon. I will be right back after a message from a Fans First Sports Network sponsor. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, so let's wrap up and dip into the mailbag. This is a question that came in over the month uh, a month ago, and I've been putting it off until now. This one came in from the Fancher siblings of Montana, who noted in their message to me they are proud to be from the same town as Orioles lefty greats 
Dave McNally, and Jeff Ballard. And they asked me to rank Orioles managers, starting with Ray Miller in 1998 on into the present. And that list of managers, just as a reminder for everybody, Ray Miller, 1998 and 99, Mike Hargrove, 2000 through 2003, Lee Mazzilli, 2004 and 2005, Sam Perlazzo, 2005 through 2007, Dave Tremblay, 2007 to 2010, Juan Samuel for a portion of the 2010 season, Buck Showalter from 2010 through 2018, and Brandon Hyde from 2019 through the present. So we're talking seven full-time managers and one interim manager now going back uh, really 26 years and 20, uh, 25 years worth of seasons. So before I dig into ranking these guys, I will just say, you know, my Orioles fan life did not give me very many uh, memories of Miller, Hargrove, or Mazzilli as manager of the Orioles, or really Perlazzo either, other than the obvious that he was at the helm for the Mother's Day Massacre. Although I have been an Orioles fan for the entirety of the 40 years of my life, um, that range um, of those managers was kind of my teenage years and early adult years where the Orioles were more in the background of my life, not something I was following on a day-to-day basis. Like, I know I went to games probably one to two per year in the 98 to 2006 range. I just don't have a ton of specific memories of those teams. I had other stuff going on in my life, so there was no reason to really like or be mad at any one of the managers in those years based on what they did or didn't do in setting lineups, managing the bullpen, talking to the media, or whatever on a daily basis. Uh, It was really only in like 2007 that I started paying closer attention to the Orioles I often ask myself, why did I do that? Because the Orioles had been bad for nearly a decade at that time and went on to continue being bad for several years more. But that was the time where I made a choice as an adult. I was like, you know what? I'm going to get more into the Orioles, follow them every day. And here I am now, like 16 years later, talking to you on this podcast. So, okay. With all that in mind, let's start at the bottom. Number eight on my list of eight is Dave Tremblay. His record as Orioles manager was 187 and 283. That is a 398 winning percentage. And his best year of the bunch was 2007, when after taking over the team, uh, the Orioles went 40 and 53 the rest of the way. You know, the fact that he's at the bottom, it's honestly not even his fault. He presided over a bad era of Orioles rosters, not as talentless as the early Hyde years we now know. But it was a time where the Orioles were stuck in a rut and frequently embarrassing in their long-term mediocrity. And that did occasionally explode into really embarrassing, such as the 30-3 game etched forever in my mind, not just because of how bad it was or because it was only game one of a doubleheader that they also embarrassingly lost the second game, but because before that very game, was when Tremblay was hired officially as manager and not just as interim. And I think it's really impossible to get that kind of loser aura banished from you. And indeed, Tremblay was never able to do that in his time uh, helming the team. In his press conferences, he would often epitomize what I think of as loser thinking in that he would frequently say some things like, sometimes you just got to tip your cap to the other guys. And I hate that stuff. I don't want to tip my cap. 
I want the manager to be mad or frustrated or fuming that the Orioles lost. As we all remember, Earl Weaver was famous for saying, just put it on my tombstone, the sorest loser who ever lived. And I would uh, I would like Orioles managers in general to at least try to inhabit being the sorest loser who ever lived. Dave Tremblay did not particularly. Number seven, Lee Mazzilli. Record as Orioles manager, 129 and 140. That is a 480 winning percentage. To be honest, he is not that bad compared to some of these other guys uh, in his winning percentage. But in a nutshell, uh, hiring the Yankees first base coach was dumb and annoying. And I think Mazzilli never getting a shot anywhere else, even though he wasn't that bad here with the Orioles, really says it all. Now, of course, could Earl Weaver have stopped the 2005 collapse when the team had a four-game division lead on June the 6th and ultimately finished 21 games out of first place? Eh, probably not, but nonetheless, I will hold it against him. Anyway, uh, of course, it was not his fault that the uh, general manager situation at the time acquired the old Sammy Sosa or that Rafael Palmero turned out to get suspended and to this day, who really knows the truth of whether he intentionally took Stan Ozalal or whatever. Um, my one real memory of a Lee Mazzilli game was I went to a game on Father's Day with my mom because my dad was out of town on an international business trip. So my mom and I were just like, you know what, let's go to the Orioles game. Uh, we sat all the way up in way the back rows of the right field upper reserve seats. Mazzilli got ejected. If I remember right, he was arguing that a Chris Davis, uh, Chris Gomez foul ball was actually a home run. It was not. Mazzilli got ejected and then threw a basket of a double bubble onto the field. My mom and I were very puzzled what it was. Uh, it looked like ice cubes from where we were standing, but they were not melting. So we were we were very confused. Later discovered it was double bubble still in the wrappers. So there you go. Lee Mazzilli. That's my one memory of him. Um, speaking of other epic season collapses, well, not really season collapses, but within a span of a single game, number six is Sam Perlazzo, record as Orioles manager, 122 and 164. That is a 427 winning percentage. His whole thing, well, the thing I remember anyway was he brought his childhood buddy from his Cumberland days or whatever. I might be remembering wrong. Uh, Leo Mazzoni on to be the pitching coach. Mazzoni, of course, known for being the pitching coach of great Braves teams of the 90s. But it turned out it was a whole lot easier to be the pitching coach for a bunch of future Hall of Fame guys than it was to be the pitching coach for Rodrigo Lopez, Adam Lowen, and Daniel Cabrera, among others. Perlazzo's most infamous game, of course, was the Mother's Day Massacre game in 2006. Why did he pull Jeremy Guthrie with 91 pitches and a five-run lead when the only runner who reached base with one out in the ninth was because of a muffed pop-up catch error. We will never know. What I do know is that I watched this game uh, while waiting to be seated for my family's Mother's Day dinner at some restaurant in Colombia. And after the collapse happened, my grandmother walked to the bar, ordered a double shot of whiskey, and then pronounced, Sam Perlazzo should be fired. And my grandmother, by the way, is from Cumberland. So if anyone was going to be loyal to the Cumberland guy, it would be my grandmother. Uh, she had enough after watching the Mother's Day Massacre. I don't blame her. She was not wrong. Of course, it took until the year after for Perlazzo to be fired in the middle of the season. Uh, speaking of other epic collapses, more on the season length. Number five, Mike Hargrove, 
record as Orioles manager was 275 and 372, which comes out to a 425 winning percentage. You know, looking back on it now, it's really kind of amazing the Orioles were able to hire Hargrove after his 1995 to 2000 run with the then Indians. Uh, Hargrove did arrive in Baltimore just in time for things to fully fall apart in the final years of Cal Ripken Jr.'s career, and then after that, in no year more thoroughly than 2002, when the team had a record of 63 and 63, and then finished four and 32 from that point forward. I didn't really feel that pain in 2002. I do sort of remember they hit that 500 mark and I was uh, going somewhere and hearing some local sports talk radio guy indignantly observe that the Orioles deserve some respect for being not terrible, but I don't I don't have any memory of the free fall. Uh, it, it hurts me more as an Orioles fan, just the fact that it happened, but like I, you know, as that was unfolding over the last month plus of the 2002 season, I was not not on the roller coaster on the way down every day, which is probably for the better for me. Number four is Juan Samuel, record as Orioles manager, 17 and 34, a 333 winning percentage. The original third base coach, who I remember thinking of as the windmill for two aggressive sends, that was not a complimentary thing for the third base coach to be the windmill. He did manage to get ejected two times in his 51 games as the manager, which is kind of impressive. I kind of sort of recall one of these. Uh, he really flipped out and threw his hat about something or other. I don't remember why. I am otherwise indifferent to him. I think you could probably put him lower on the list if you uh, are not as offended by some of the collapses that offended me. But, you know, to me, he's he never got a fair chance, and so he's in the middle of this list. Number three, Ray Miller, record as Orioles manager, 157 and 167. That is a 485 winning percentage. He was born in Maryland as well. Always a nice bonus, not a necessary thing. Uh, again, with Miller, I'm otherwise indifferent to him. Um, I don't have any strong memories of those in 98 and 99 teams. Miller, at least, was pitching coach to some good Orioles teams. Not that I have any strong memory of those other than the 97 Orioles either. So that brings us to number two, Brandon Hyde, the current Orioles manager, his record as Orioles manager so far, 315 and 393, a 445 winning percentage, really a strong improvement in his percentage over the course of 2023. You know, I like Hyde. I liked him even when the Orioles were losing a hundred and more games per season. I thought that uh, he was able to keep the clubhouse from sinking into feeling like it was a dour march towards the end of the season. And I think that work is paying off now that the team is good and some of the players who were around for those horrible losing years were able to be key contributors on those teams. I think most of the time people get mad at Brandon Hyde. It's because of decisions that are made where he knows someone is injured or unavailable and the people that get mad are not really willing to consider that possibility. I think Hyde's time is all the more remarkable when considered against recent examples of rebuilding and tanking teams where the managers of the really bad years did not bridge the gap as Hyde has now been able to do, stuck around and made it to the 83 and 79 Orioles of 2022. And not, then the Orioles did not replace him immediately when they started sensing things got better. They kept him around. And of course, the Orioles 
101 and 61 this year. It is still amazing that happened. And that got Hyde closer to 500. More power to him. I hope the Orioles can get him closer to 500 still before he is done in his time as Orioles manager. That leaves us number one. It is Buck Showalter. Record as Orioles manager, 669 and 684. That is a 494 winning percentage. It still sucks that the 2018 was so bad that they knocked him below 500 as uh, over his whole tenure. Had the Orioles merely been a still terrible 55 and 107 over the 2018 season, Buck would be above 500 as Orioles manager. And if the Orioles had done that, by the way, they still would have had the number one pick for Adley Rutschman in 2019. That said, I mean, of course, Buck is number one for me. Uh, You know, he was at the helm of a five-year stretch of solid baseball that included the three years with playoff bids. And the two years they didn't make the playoffs were two amazing Chris Davis seasons, hitting a ton of home runs. Buck was the manager in 2011 for the final game walk-off. That was the precursor to 2012, I think, and will always believe. Of course, that Game 162 comeback knocked the Red Sox out of the postseason, combined with results elsewhere in the league. And then, you know, in 2010, as soon as Buck arrived, the team turned around and played better the best of the uh, the rest of that year as well. Showalter, of course, was not perfect. We all know the infamous non-use of Zach Britton in the 2016 wildcard game, among other things. But of course, the reason that betrayal was so great was because Buck was normally not that stupid. So like, to this day, I don't know. No one will ever know. But Buck, I mean, he showed up at a dark time for the franchise. He said all the right things and ultimately delivered on uh, his regular promises of having the Orioles be relevant again. He trails only Earl Weaver on the franchise list for wins as manager. Brandon Hyde would have to average 89 wins or more for the next four years in order to pass a buck. Uh, You know, if Hyde has three more good seasons and the Orioles make or win the World Series over that time, maybe he would pass Buck on my own ranking for the managers. But otherwise, I think Buck is Buck, and he is the number one uh, manager for the Orioles going back to 1998. So what do you think about this ranking? Did I leave out something great or terrible about any of these managers where you think they should be higher or lower? Let me know your thoughts, or if you've got any question for a future episode of the show at camdencastpod at gmail.com. Thank you again to the Fanchers of Montana for this prompt and to everyone who's written in so far this year. That's all that I've got for today. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe on your favorite platform and tell someone you know about the show. For the off-season, new episodes will be out weekly on Mondays, so I will see you on the morning of the 20th or whenever you get around to listen to it, and we can start to focus on more what the Orioles might do over the course of this off-season. Good Morning Birdland is a Camden Cast production on the Fans First Sports Network. This is Mark Brown, signing off.